Good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you all this morning. Today's sermon is titled Together in Decline. Because even though I'm tired of it, and I think we're all tired of it, there isn't a better word I can think of to describe our world and our time. Record heat levels across the globe, floods in Kentucky, Sri Lanka's economy and people are in great crisis. Our own political system, I think particularly the Supreme Court, feels so broken. And though I try to hold it at bay at the periphery of my consciousness, I am anxiously monitoring what um, is called another global health crisis, monkeypox, and what that might mean for many of those that we love, even as we continue to deal with COVID-19. On every level, creation, government, the economy, the church, family, even my own body and psyche feels like things continue to decline. How are we supposed to live together in decline? And to answer this question, we turn to the book of Ruth this morning and ask the memory of Naomi to guide us. The book of Ruth begins right after the terrible end of the book of Judges. Judges should come with a lot of content warnings, but it reminds us that this story starts haunted by violence, by Israel's civil war, by vice-filled leaders like Samson, by ongoing wars at Israel's tribal borders against surrounding powerful nations, and specifically violence against women. It is in these dark days that the book begins. And in addition to all that violence, the next verse, verse two, tells us that the land itself is visited by debilitating famine. On every level, creation, politics, the economy, and the community are decaying. To get a sense of the setting of our text, I'm gonna ask us to imagine with me um, the story of Naomi, as I guide us through the first few verses of this chapter to introduce us to the text. <clears throat> Imagine, in this time of tumult, your husband takes you and your kids to leave the land that you've belonged to, to leave home. Maybe you feel conflicted or sorrowful to leave everything, everywhere, everyone that you've known, but you also know that the kids have been hungry at night and Bethlehem bread pantry's shelves have gotten emptier and emptier each week. You argue with Elimelech that the garden still can be tended to, that drought-resistant plants will still bear their fruit, but at the end of the day, he says it's his decision. He's the head of the household, and he says it's decided. You all are going to immigrate in search of a better future. It's the morning of the move, and your friends have gathered to help you and send you off. And between hugs and tears, they ask you where you're moving. You tell them tentatively, well, Elimelech has chosen Moab. And you're not surprised by the stunned looks on their faces. This is why you've avoided telling them where you're going. Your friend Tamar is the first to break the silence and she says, Moab? Naomi, I mean, sure, maybe they've got food, 
but you know how King Eglon oppressed our people for 18 years until Ehud freed our people. You're willingly going back to the house of oppression? Another friend cuts in and says, Naomi, they tried to curse our ancestors through their prophet Balaam when we were coming out of Egypt. How can you trust yourself to them? Question after question after question. The fact that you've already asked yourself all these questions doesn't make it any easier to endure. And their questions only strengthen the concerns in your mind which follow you to Moab and seem to overshadow everything even as you look at your new house in Moab. But you tell yourself that this house will be good. But you also wonder how, how will we teach our sons to fare in this strange land where they are foreigners? But Elimelech doesn't want to hear of your worries. He has convinced himself that you all will fare well here if you only work hard enough, if we work hard enough together. And it's just not worth arguing anymore. He's got things to do. And at times you catch him gazing off into the distance dreamily, romantically living out the story of Abraham in his own head. A wandering Aramean, our ancestor, who arrived in a hostile place and made something of himself. But before he could realize any of that dream, Elimelech, your partner, imperfect, patriarchal, but beloved, dies. There is no time for grief because there are matters to be taken care of. Funeral rites are different here in Moab than back home. So is the language. Funeral bills for their strange rites are steeper too. Maybe they're cheating you, but you can't worry about that. You still have to feed your sons. You have to pay for school. The rent is still due. There's no time. You find a second job. You ignore the leering men. You do what you have to do to put food on the table. And somehow, miracle of miracles, you find two wives for your sons. And you breathe a sigh of relief. Maybe finally a break. Maybe you'll have enough time to do your quiet times again. Maybe with them, our future will be secure, you think to yourself. But then month after month, a silence creeps into the house. And months become years. And the silence becomes constant in the home, unpierced by the laughter and cries of new life. Why, God? Why and what have we done to deserve this? You don't want to apply pressure to your kids. You see it in their eyes. They know as much as you do that the survival of your family depends on their having children, especially as your body declines. Just put one foot in front of the other, Orpa, you tell your daughter-in-law when she tearfully tells you that they still are trying every month, even though it's been 10 years. You wonder to yourself, why has God closed her womb? But this isn't the end of the silence. The silence grows darker and stronger. God just doesn't seem to relent. And God takes both of your baby boys. This is the story of Naomi for the people of Naomi this morning. Might we have hearts to receive and might we be formed by the wisdom of her memory What are we supposed to do in the midst 
of all this devastation and decline? How do we live in the midst of destruction that threatens to take over us and our faith? There are just three things that I want to highlight for us from the scripture this morning. First, I want to say that I really admire Naomi for her honesty. Naomi is a woman who has lived. And I don't just mean like YOLO, she lived her life. I mean that she is a woman who has been worn down by life. She has seen things. She knows people. And difficulty has a way of making you either become more plastic and false or more true. I love that when Naomi gets home to Bethlehem and her friends recognize her and exclaim, could this be Naomi? She doesn't pretend. She responds, you all stop. Call me Mara because life has been hard and I am bitter. She doesn't lie to herself. She doesn't try to cover her experience in nice sounding pieties in God will still take care of us's or God always makes things better. She does not bear false witness to her experience for God hadn't taken care of her. God had not made things better. God was against her. She speaks the truth of her experience and she would not allow others to narrate her life otherwise. No, she says, my life has not been pleasant. I left Bethlehem full, but God has brought me back empty. God has afflicted me. God has brought misfortune upon me. For any of you who have grown up in the church, and even as I say those words, what Naomi says makes us a little uncomfortable. Why is that? Where were we taught that we must plaster over our own pain with systematic truths? Why is it that we have counted it a virtue to practice self-gaslighting? What are we afraid of? Perhaps it reveals that we are worried, anxious that we will be punished further or not receive blessing or suffer more if we say things that are unbecoming of God. And out of our fear, we have transmuted the vice of lying into a virtue. Not so with Naomi. Maybe she just got tired of lying and decided that if pious words weren't going to change anything, well, she could at least bear a truthful witness about herself. And if it made other people uncomfortable, well, they could be uncomfortable. Because at least her suffering didn't have to remain invisible anymore. And those who loved her would stay. And those who didn't love her, well, they were going to go anyway. And she could be true. Mara reminds me of my grandmother. You know, she was fairly cheerful for most of her life, even though she had seen a lot. Who hasn't growing up in war? But the years after my grandfather died, when I would ask her how she was, it was like she couldn't contain the truth any longer. She would say to me, Zhongyan, life is suffering. In Chinese, we say, 
sang lo bang se, which means that life is birth, which is pain, growing up in age, which is pain, sickness, which is pain, and death, which is pain. And she would say, it's hard to get through. And I didn't know what to say in response to her truthfulness. What I admire about Naomi is that she wasn't governed by what she should say or should feel, or even what she should pray. The one prayer that we get in Ruth 1, Naomi prays in verse 8 and 9, and she says, May Adonai show you kindness or hesed, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands in me. Naomi doesn't call on Orpah and Ruth to be like God, but prays that God would be like these foreign women who have shown her actual kindness. She has the audacity to hold God to the character of these women. And further, she does not pray to a God that has betrayed her. She's, she's still gonna pray for other people, but she's like, no, I'm not gonna pray for myself. Friends, in seasons of decline, we can learn from Naomi's honesty and truthfulness. A German philosopher writes that language is real, practical consciousness. And in seasons of decline, we cannot afford to be untruthful with our words. For truthfulness sets us free to live in reality. If you can't sing praise, don't sing praise. If you can't pray without betraying yourself, don't pray. If you need to accuse God, turn to the Psalms and let them provide the language you need to accuse God. Or listen to Pastor Michael's music. Let us speak truthfully about our decline. Let yourself breathe. Second, I wanna point out that Naomi really doesn't do too much. The main thing that Naomi does in this first chapter is, is, to, is to decide to return home to Bethlehem and then try four times to get rid of her daughters-in-laws who want to support her. And for the rest of the book of Ruth, Naomi hardly shows up. And when she does, uh, she gives some questionable advice to Ruth that's a little bit self-centered, putting Ruth in a pretty risky situation. And she receives the food of Ruth's labor. That's all she does. Naomi literally exists on the margins of the book of Ruth, a silent presence that animates the whole plot, yet does next to nothing. What are we to do with her lack of action? You see, our habits of thinking, our, our theology doesn't help us to see the gift Naomi's story offers us today. Even in preparation for the sermon, I naturally hurried towards wanting to focus on how we can be like Ruth, the young foreign woman of incomparable loyalty and valor, the protagonist of the story, or to focus on how we can steward wealth and power like evolved Boaz as he lives in the light and lessons of his sex worker mother's life, Rahab. But I don't actually think their stories help us the most in our own seasons of decline. In many ways, I worry that our sermons, my sermons can feed us the opposite of what we need in the midst of decline. I worry that our sermons can conspire with a society that teaches us that we need to be busy just with the right things and do everything that we can 
that our sermons can collude with an economy that says, if you're not killing yourself trying to change your situation, trying to get better, well, then maybe you deserve what you get. Basically, sometimes I think we as preachers say, sure, you may be saved or justified by grace, but your sanctification, that's, that's on you, so you better get busy. And as a listener, as a member of the congregation, I participate in this too. I want to know what to do to fix my life. I want to know what to do to make things better. I want to know how God might have me act. Both preachers and congregants, we believe to a certain extent that our faith, like our bank accounts, are filled by our strategy, our industriousness, our work. We practice pulling ourselves spiritually and financially up by our own bootstraps. Now, of course, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do anything. Clearly, the scriptures tell us in different parts to work hard and wisely. But all throughout the Bible, the scriptures are particularly insistent to tell us that when we are in seasons of decline, when we feel our own feebleness and frailty, when we feel that we are out of control, that that's when we are most easily tempted by and can justify, even with the language of God, the demonic. The scriptures warn us over and over that when we are in decline is when we are most vulnerable to the illusionary offers of control. That security can be attained through our own manipulations, through the power of more weapons, more money, or maybe to put it more innocently, more growth, more market share, or more influence. This shouldn't surprise us. We should remember that when the devil tempted Jesus when his body was declining from 40 days of starving, the devil himself tempts Jesus to take action to save himself from decline and justifies it with scripture. But luckily the scriptures give us another way, Naomi's way. So let's look at the most decisive action that Naomi does take for a clue. In the first chapter of Ruth, there is one word that gets repeated over and over and over. After the introduction, it's actually repeated 12 times, almost every verse. And it's this word, return or shuv. Now, if you grew up in the church, you may have heard a sermon about this word. It means to turn around or maybe to repent or to feel contrition or to feel bad. But I don't think that's entirely right about what Naomi is doing. I don't think she is, she's done anything wrong. In her mind, God is the one who has wronged her. So what should we do with this repetition of return or go back? For it is the most decisive action that Naomi takes in the whole book. Um, before my grandmother passed, as she was getting older and older, we often worried about her hurting herself or just struggling. She lived alone. My grandfather had already passed and they had this big house with two floors and a garden and a yard and winters in New York City are not a joke. I think it might've been when she crashed the car that that's when my family really started talking seriously about 
her needing to live somewhere else, maybe. The house was a mess anyway. There were always bills and receipts everywhere. And so we asked, did she need to move to SoCal, where my aunt and uncle live, or maybe to Singapore, where my parents are? The winters in New York are so cold, and we were worried that she would slip. We thought it wasn't, it wasn't good for her to be there. But as much as she loved us, she resisted living more than a few months in Singapore or spending much time in SoCal. <clears throat> and any of you know, who know Chinese families can guess that she would rather die than even talk about assist, assisted living or be, living in assisted living. One time after my aunt visited New York in the dead of winter, she came back to the family and she said, I get it. Her memories are there in that house. She goes to a small immigrant church there and the people know her, they recognize her, they talk to her, they love her. Her final surviving sister-in-law and, and our cousins, they live 15 minutes away. She knows the place. I think we need to find somebody to live with her to help her. And so we did. We realized that even though it made the least sense in terms of her safety, we thought, or maybe for us, that she needed to live the rest of her days at her home, in her own home. And I think that that's what's happening with Naomi. She hears that God is providing bread again at home. And I think she is resigned. She has done all she can. She's ready to turn from toil that promised gain and to spend the rest of her days at home. You know, in our world of such powerful technology where we can keep our homes lit even when the sky's lights go out, where we can catapult telescopes into space to see distant galaxies, where our medicines are nothing short of miraculous, we can live under the illusion that our lives will go on forever. That Nothing can't be reworked with the human will. Where there's a will, there's a way. That all we need to undergo is the next treatment. And there's always something more that can be done. All we need is the will to fight. But I've really appreciated learning from hospice workers and palliative care chaplains who know that sometimes the goal of extending the days of pain-filled lives is a misguided or torturous goal. And rather than do anything more, we need actually to cease, to face and manage pain, and to be present to the gift of life in whatever time we have left. To stop being preoccupied with romantically trying to delay or to deny the inevitable and shift our attention to the present and to just be. Naomi's story is a truthful story, a sad story, but a wise guide. For in her most crucial action in the book, she decides that it is time to turn. Time to turn from the way of toil, to return home and to enter the care of hospice. She has spent her whole life working so hard, trying, laboring, holding it together, making a way where there was no way, giving more than she had to give for those that she loved. It is time to turn from ceaseless industry, 
maybe time to stop invasive surgery, time to halt the never-ending appointments and meetings, and time to move home and welcome whatever might come. Time to try and find peace amidst pain too terrible to name. In decline, the wisdom of Naomi tells us that there is time when the best thing that we can do is just stop. Instead of trying to add days to our lives, instead to focus on living the life left in our days. And we need that invitation today, that sometimes it is a mercy to cease and that it is always a real option to resign from our jobs and that it is not always unfaithful to quit. It might be the most faithful thing that we do to just live feeble, human, apart from the idols who have promised us unending life and to find some rest and that that is more than okay. I've told us so far that we can be bitter or truthful, that we can subtweet God in prayer, that sometimes we can just do nothing. And I just wanna end by giving us a justification and reason for why I think these prior two points are true. Third and finally, the reason I think that Naomi has shown us a true path is because of how the story ends. Naomi did not return with a contrite or repentant heart. She did not feel bad for what she'd done. Unlike Elijah, she doesn't berate herself for being no better than her ancestors. She's not like the persistent widow of Luke 18 the paragon of prayer who bangs on the door of the unjust judge until he relents. No, the book of, Na of Ruth reminds us that Naomi's path is one that we can follow. In many ways, I think that the book of Ruth, I have to put this slide up. I think that the book of Ruth is like the story of Mulan. You know, all the action in Mulan might distract us or might make us forget that the real reason for this entire story, the real reason that Mulan went to war was not because she wanted to. The whole plot is animated because she wanted to save her father, because she loved him. She took his place. Similarly, while most of the rest of the book of Ruth teaches us that God's kindness works through the active kinship ties of the community of God, which is good news we should heed in another sermon, the main purpose and the main person that benefits from this entire story is Naomi. It is a story about how a widow resigns herself to decline and how God acts through the kindness of her kin to redeem her from her bitterness. You know, of all three characters in the book of Ruth, Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, Naomi is the only one who goes through a transformation. Ruth is always good, amazing, the unexpected hero, subverting the community's prejudiced expectations. Boaz, always good, benevolent, bending the law to improvise radical generosity, unattainable, at least for me. But Naomi, she changes. Where in chapter one, Naomi renames herself Mara and tries to push away the only family she had left. In chapter four, Naomi allows herself to be called Naomi again. 
as she gathers baby Obed, the would-be grandfather of King David, into her chest and cares for him tenderly. The story of Naomi and the entire story of God invites us, especially in seasons of decline, to trust in what Christians call grace, which is just to learn to receive love. It's a wondrous and scary thing to receive. But the story of Naomi reminds us of the truthful situation of our need at the end of our ability to trust that even if we give questionable advice that puts others we love selfishly at risk, even if we are bitter, even if we sully God's name, that ultimately we are loved. In the New Testament, an expert of the law stands up to test Jesus. And he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life or the life of the ages? And Jesus responds, love your neighbor and tells the story that we know as the story of the Good Samaritan. I like to think of Naomi's story as the original inspiration for the Good Samaritan story of a person battered and bruised by life and saved by the kindness and abundant generosity of another. These stories full of bitterness and pain encourages me that we are not lost. We don't need to perform piety while in pain. We don't need to do anything to be loved. God is not like a boss or parent or partner that we need to flatter to keep his fragile ego intact or placate to keep his anger at bay. We don't need to pretend to be Ruth or Boaz, though we may desire to be. No, our story is a story of grace, of a God who loves us and provides for us right in the midst of our bitterness, through the kindness of those around us who bear truthful and loving witness to our pain. So friends, in our seasons of climate calamity, political instability, and bodily decline. Let us follow Naomi together, speaking truthfully, discerning when it's time to turn and to cease, and to discover that we are held as dearly beloved recipients of the mystery of grace.